this hour will not be an hour because of our time already. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you that you are who you are, that you can be known, and we don't have to be floundering in the dark, but rather if we consider ourselves by faith your people, we are in a special relationship before you now and that which is future much more so. So help us as we look at some of these scriptures that we might learn to appreciate all that you are and all that you've done, for we claim it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the next one we're going to look at by way of a topic is uh, God is creator. <clears throat> Obviously, he is that. And Genesis 1.1, begins, the Bible begins with a statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything there is. So therefore, it's... Uh, an awesome God, when you consider uh, the magnitude of outer space, you know, it just blows you away when you realize the tremendous amount of space that's out there and, and various things that God had created. The word create, the Hebrew word, means to make out of nothing. See, we have the ability to make things out of things. Uh, resource materials, raw materials. God makes things out of nothing. Only God has the power to create and by the way, the enemy of our souls, <clears throat> only, a, uh, only a demon angel is not able to create. He is not, only God has the ability to create. The enemy can only do what he's allowed to do, nothing more, that's all. So, let's look at the Ecclesiastes 1 in 12.1. Uh, the old uh, writer at this point, old because he was old when he wrote this, Solomon in writing the book of Ecclesiastes, that's a difficult book because it sounds so frustrating. And the things that Solomon says in that book makes you wonder, where is this inspiration from God? But what Solomon does, if you look carefully at the book of Ecclesiastes, he takes every human philosophy, runs it to its logical conclusion, and blows it to the wind. That's why it's written what it is, okay? And so what Solomon says at the end here is, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth because the evil days will come and you might say at that time that you have no pleasure in them. Okay? And then in the further, chapter, further in the chapter he says, The end of all things, fear God and keep His commandments because that is the full duty of man. The next one is the passage we looked at earlier from Romans 1 where <clears throat> the people having a, a form of godliness and... Uh, Though they knew God before, did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and the senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the word. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And when they did that, they had to come to a conclusion about what was working in the world. Because if you exit God out of the factor, you have to come to some conclusion, Right? You have, to, you have to judge, guess something. If you took algebra, you know, X equals so-and-so. But in order to have algebra make sense, you have to have some, some definite word, uh, number with it. You know. But let's suppose you just put X plus Y equals J, and you have nothing more. doesn't make any sense, because you don't have any uh, material by which you can do anything with it. That's the frustration that the person who denies God in the process has. He has to explain 
this marvelous world of tremendous organization, of tremendous infinite design, without believing there's a designer. And that doesn't make any sense at all. So he has to militate against his own common sense to believe this stuff. And then, of course, the more you believe it, the more you get entrenched in it and so on. And so we have people that are very profound thinkers and very intelligent, intelligent that buy the lie. Once you buy the lie, you have to come to this conclusion. And so, therefore, you see, an evolutionist, by uh, definition, has to be an atheist. Because you have to believe there is no God, because if there is no God, you have no one to be accountable to. Right? That makes sense. Okay. That's another issue by itself. God is powerful. It's another aspect. <clears throat> now, there are many, many things in the scriptures that speak of the, of, of the God of the Bible as, like it says in Joshua 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one. I mean, it has a, a repetition there as to his character there. Or in Psalm 24, the long str- Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. It has to do with the Warfare that uh, God is involved in. Uh, turn with me, please, to uh, Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, you know, we talk about uh, spiritual warfare sometimes, and that Christians are in a warfare. But let's look at this passage in uh, Revelation 19:11. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head are many diadems or crowns. He has a name written upon him which no one knows but himself. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. But then notice verse 14. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, follow him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, that with it he may smite the nations. Interesting terminology, because it says that all these that follow him, because if we go back to um, verse 7 and 8, it says the bride of the Lamb was given to clothe herself in fine linen. So obviously these are people who are redeemed that go to be with the Lord. And there's a battle that takes place at this point in time. But notice that, he is the only one that gets in the battle because they still are clothed in white linen, which would not be true if they were in a lot of bloodletting, right? Right? They are merely participants from the background. It is God who will fight for us, right? God who will fight for us. Remember when the uh, children of Israel came to the Red Sea and they were afraid because there was the sea and behind was Pharaoh's army? And what was it Moses said? Fear not, and you will see the deliverance that God is bringing to you today. It is God who did it. It was all God. Nothing that they did that was uh, part of their um, salvation. God is great. Now, some of these things you take for granted. But at the same time, uh, I'm going to back up a second here because I missed something that I wanted to share. Uh, Jeremiah 27, by my great power I made the earth. But uh, Romans 1.16, 
is the heart cry of Paul's experience. Uh, uh, the just shall live by faith. And the verse that precedes it is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. So, but there's that word. It is the power of God, the salvation to everyone who believes. Now, we, we look at that passage and we think just talking about salvation. It's talking more than salvation. Because it is said that uh, it is the power of God, not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God to bring salvation to those who believe, right? So, therefore, the word power, by the way, the Greek word is dunamis, from which we get the English word dynamite. It's the explosive power of God. Now, what is it that resonates in a human soul that allows him to be converted? What is it that is there? When Jesus met Nicodemus, he said, unless one's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember, Nicodemus didn't understand that. Jesus said further, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he shall not see the kingdom of God. So what is it in the person's soul and heart that, that resonates that way, that makes it, it, it possible? Turn with me to the book of Proverbs chapter 30. Because the Proverbs uses some illustrations sometimes that are quite fascinating. The 30th Proverb. Beginning with verse 18. The writer of the proverb, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, says, There are three things that are too wonderful for me, four I can't understand. And he lists them. First of all, he talks about the way of an eagle in the sky. Now we know, uh, what, in the thermodynamic matter, that when the eagle soars, they go above the storm. They allow the storm to carry them. But have you, have you ever wondered, what is this, the way of an eagle in the sky? Remember that when the first clumsy efforts were made to try to develop heavier-than-aircraft, those old things were looked so silly, <laughs> you know? There were times when they tried to develop <laughs> wings, you know what I mean? Just put, hang on, that you go flapping along and, and, and fall off an edge and just hit the ground. That's, you know, everything was disaster. And the early airplanes looked really silly, didn't they? But the point was, how do you really explain this? You know, there's a dynamic that goes with it that can be explainable, but for the average layman, what is it that allows an eagle to soar through the sky? Second thing he says is the way of a serpent and a rock. Isn't that weird? You have this weird-looking thing with no legs, and it just squirrels along, you know. <laughs> what makes this thing move? Uh, what, what is the dynamic that allows this thing to move like it does? And fast, oftentimes. Then he says, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea. How is it that you can have these heavy boats float without being submerged in the water? What is the buoyancy that allows them to float? And then the last one is, the way of a man with a maiden. What is this Weird thing that takes place when people come to be in a special relationship with someone. It's called falling in love. It's kind of a dumb statement. We mean fall in love, collapse backwards. <laughs> but you know, the, 
what I mean. What is this special dynamic that takes place between two people uh, when they're very much in love with each other? What is that phenomena that takes place? Yeah, it's like, how do you understand this thing's too wonderful for me? Okay? Now, having said that, going back to Romans one sixteen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's dynamic of God that brings salvation to the person. You know, you cannot literally or in a rhetorical way explain what happens when a person gets saved. You can say these are the things that take place, but what is that dynamic that takes place? In the book of uh, Acts chapter 16, there's a story of Paul going to the city of Philippi and he found there was a ladies' group down by the riverside, and he hung out with them because they, they were worshiping God. And there was this lady by the name of Lydia, if you remember, remarkable woman because she was a traveling sales lady, very rare in the ancient world. And it said, the Spirit of God opened her heart to believe what Paul was saying. That is the ingredient, you see. That's the power of God, right? Remember the old... Uh, Gospel song. It took a miracle. It took a miracle to hang the world in space. It took a miracle to put the world in place. But when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, it took a miracle of love and grace. Greater than all these other things that God does. See, there, in the condition that man found himself in after the fall, God had to do something to bring him back into relationship. And that was through the Redeemer and the atonement and all that uh, kind of stuff. But there had to be some dynamic that would take place within the individual to bring them to that point. And that's the mysterious thing that is called grace. How God works in the human heart to bring them to faith. You know? And then, then we often take the credit by saying, I accepted the Lord. And it's like, I did something wonderful. No. I'm here to respond to what God wanted to do, and I didn't rebel anymore. And that's the ingredient, isn't it? But it's the power of God that's there. It's a mysterious thing, you see. Uh, we make it theological. And I don't think God ever intended it that way. I think God intends that we would look at this phenomenon and be absolutely amazed what takes place. How did that person get saved? No. Huh? It ought to bring us awe and wonder. Okay, and then Paul said, to know him and the power of his resurrection. Okay. Now, how God, God is great. Let's look at the second one, which is from Revelation 15. Let's turn to Revelation 15, please. And this is the little short chapter in Revelation where it says in verse 3, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the son of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. The first thing he says, As great is the Lord. Now, an interesting thing about this passage is it says it's the song of Moses, but you do not find that in Deuteronomy, Numbers, Exodus, or Leviticus. It's not found there which may infer he's still writing stuff <laughs> in heaven, right? He's got a new song that he has the uh, host to sing, right? Which points out that don't ever think that you're 
life on earth has been just the end and then you go on to something else. It's a continuation of what God has done in your life. And that's why ministry is so important. And ministry is not just what we consider ministry, which is pastors and missionaries. The concept of the sacred versus the secular is uh, not found in Scripture. There is nothing. There is nothing that is secular if it's done in in the name of God. Everything that God has called you to do in your life work, unless it be evil, is sacred. Okay? And we elevate people in the clergy and missionary. And in some ways they paid a price, especially in missionaries. But at the same time, your work as a layman or lay person is no less important than anything any famous pastor or missionary does or has done. It's the same in God's eyes. And after all, he's the only one we need to impress anyway, right? <laughs> right? Amen. Okay. <laughs> it's amazing when you think about it, how we, how we live. We live all our lives trying to impress people. <laughs> or people do it and say we, suggesting anything you're doing. But at the same time, it's generally true, isn't it? We, we are really concerned what people think of us. Right? What's the old adage? You've heard it before, I've shared it before. You wouldn't worry nearly much, nearly as much about what people thought of you if you, re- you realized how seldom they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Okay, great as a God. God. Now, this is something that is interesting because it seems to be a contradiction of the statement, God is love. God is terrible. And so there's some scriptures here we need to know. One is in Psalm 2. Let's go to Psalm 2 and look at the context. In the second Psalm, it begins by saying, Why are the nations in in an uproar and the peoples plot in vain? The rulers of the earth set themselves, their rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us cast our cords from us. We don't want anything to do with the Holy One of Israel. And then you have this rather... Interesting statement in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Not because it's funny, but because it's so ridiculous. That puny man on this puny planet would shake his puny fist at God and say, I don't want you to have anything to do with you. So, at the end of the uh, psalm, it says, Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, with trembling and rejoicing. Do homage to the Son. Okay, next one. Whoops, get back here. Uh, The people, this is from Exodus, at the time of the deliverance, when the people saw the mighty hand of God, they feared the Lord and put their trust in Him. They did not, were not afraid of Him, they reverenced Him. Great is the Lord and greatly be feared above all gods. Uh, Psalm 11, 11, 111 and Proverbs 1, 7 both say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And then Jeremiah 5, 22, should you not fear me, should you not tremble at my presence? And then let's go to Hebrews 10.31. Hebrews 10.31. Verse 28 and following. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses. 
How much more severe punishment do you think will be deserved by him who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay, the next one. Excuse me, the next one from First Second Corinthians 5.11. The way it is there is the King James Version, but I like that version because it says, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If we really understand and have some knowledge of what hell is like, we ought to purpose that we would allow ourselves to be used of God to bring people in the right relationship to God so that they would avoid this thing called hell. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Okay, let's go to the next one. God is our judge. Now, this is an interesting passage because the passage in John 5.22 is the words of Jesus where he said, The Father has entrusted all authority or judgment to the Son. But let's continue and look at another parallel passage from John. Chapter 3, verse 17, where Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. And then John 5.22, the Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. But then let's go to another passage in John, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 47. Where it says, if anyone hears my sayings, Jesus speaking, and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. But notice the next passage in 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one thing that judges him. The word which I spoke will be the judgment. Okay. So when people meet the judgment of God, it is because they themselves have chosen to reject the Lord. And then let's look at, well, uh, Acts 17. Yeah, we should check that one too. Acts 17. This was when Paul was in Athens and speaking to a group of philosophers. And they laughed at him because he was preaching strange gods and he spoke of the resurrection. And Paul says, finally, in verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Okay, there is the judgment that comes. And then let's go also to First Peter 2.23. It's an interesting passage because we usually miss a lot of part of it. First Peter 2. In verse 21 says, 
For this you have been called, because Jesus Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. In other words, we ought to pattern ourselves after what the Bible tells us was the pattern left by the Lord Jesus. He is the most accurate pattern. But then in verse 22 it says, He committed no sin, nor was guile or deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he offered no threats. But that's not the end of the verse. Because the rest of the verse says, He entrusted himself to one who judges righteously. Does that mean that the people who crucified Jesus were not accountable? Oh no, it doesn't mean that. It means that yes, there is a judgment that comes even though Jesus did not defend himself. He did not claim any mercy. Because there's one who judges things. You remember that on the cross, one of the words that Jesus said is seemingly uh, difficult. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, is Jesus saying at that moment in time, Father, just write this sin from their lives? Well, that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? See, the word forgive means to, to, to let go to release from obligation, from condemnation. Now, can you think of a father in the natural now? Having a son that's being put to death in a cruel, terrible suffering manner. Having the power and the authority to stop that execution and not doing it. Would you not say that the father was tempted even though this plan had been put in operation from eternity past. Here was the beloved son. And so what Jesus, I believe, is asking is, Father, not now. (laughs) Hold back. Release it for now. Temporary respite. I believe that's what it really meant. Because it doesn't make sense that he would just forgive them for everything they were doing in the act of crucifixion. Okay, so... See, that's the end of that, isn't it? Okay, there were three that I didn't get up there, apparently. Let's look at uh, one, which is... That's, that's sufficient. Tomorrow night, we'll be covering other aspects of the character of God. And, and there are like 48 that we're covering these four nights. I've spent most or a larger amount of time tonight on He is King, because that's what He really is. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you, if He's that, He's everything else. But in the everything else, we need to know that too, because there are marvelous things that are there for our application. So there'll be another group that we'll be sharing tomorrow night as well as we come together. So Lord bless you. Hope it's help to you and an encouragement to you. So Craig, would you come and close for us?